0: on Fangraphs Audio, Carson and I talk about the week that was in baseball. What you don't know is that we can tell the future and take advantage of this knowledge to record topical podcasts years in advance. Here's a sampling of upcoming shows that we've already recorded. January 2nd, 2015. We talk about the expansionary tendency of new commissioner Rob Manfred when he announces plans to add a new team in Montreal in 2016. May 8th, 2016. Montreal's team is off to a blistering start and is the toast of the league with poutine futures soaring in the commodities market. October 9th, 2016. Montreal marches on to the World Series while Canada's economy falls into a tailspin after a nationwide polite standoff where no resident would act first at the poutine farmers market. No poutine is sold nationwide for weeks. May 10th, 2017. Canada goes bankrupt and disbands as a country due to an economic depression. These problems spread like wildfire across the world as potato and cheese shortages lead to a shortage of cheese fries and most breakfast food combination plates. We live in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. February twelfth, twenty eighteen. After cyborg Edgar Martinez and Chris Cotillo suffer injuries in an off-season pickup basketball game, The Expos are lacking starters at first base and center field, forcing them to sign the top two available free agents, robot Otis Nixon and zombie Julio Franco. On this week's show, some pre-apocalyptic nonsense. are kind of caught at big outlets for plagiarizing. That's usually like, the, oh, it's too much, too fast. He couldn't handle it. He tried to figure out a way to keep up, and this is what he did. Wasn't well, that what and,
1: happened to Jonah What's-His-Butt? Yeah, yep, and Jonah there was Laird. a
0: movie about Stephen Glass at the New Republic, at the Atlantic, or something like that. Sort of a similar deal.
1: Yeah, Jonah Lehrer is uh, still younger than me. I guess he'll continue to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when does he pass you? Yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, um, just by the looks of him, he's probably healthier than I am. So, uh I just, God
0: knows his bank account is.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it is. Although, uh, um, despite the uh, low, low quality of my work, it's probably still um, more legitimate.
0: I think you've got more uh, 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 respectability in the gift community than he does.
1: Yeah, he does, yeah. It's actually funny. Um, I have illicitly Googled General Lair here and I found my way to his Twitter account. Uh, it appears as though he has not posted uh, he has not posted since uh, he was releasing a text of his uh, his apology from from last around last Valentine's Day.
0: If I remember correctly, he like reentered the media like a month ago because it, I think it came out he got a book deal, but he didn't like really want to talk about it. But I think he either gave one interview or somebody like at the publisher gave an interview on his behalf or something like like something happened that people were writing about.
1: Mm. Well, great.
0: We sound pretty well informed on this topic
1: here yeah, we sure. do we're really bringing it home the uh okay let's talk about let's talk about something a, a, not an authentic comment but a single comment from your most recent uh chat your most recent chat someone was asking you uh, you know at what point or how how it how it's possible to identify or when it's possible to identify when a player is a guy right and when he when he's certainly a prospect and you made the comment to the effect that um, at this point, kids are committing to colleges as early as 13. Um, yeah. And um, I know that I w- – when you were discussing uh, going out to the high school, the, like the perfect game showcase there, um, I know that certain parts of that conversation made me feel – it's not awkward, but at a certain point, uh, you want you want children to behave like children and to have the liberties of children. Um and there's something that's i suppose there's something that feels strange to me about about you know looking deeply at a at a thirteen year old to attempt to you know project his you know his future as a as a major league or as a baseball player and I'm curious what what is the sort of what is the sort of status of things right now as far as that goes and what are is anyone suggesting that it feels weird i mean it's only weird if you think it's weird Okay. I mean, I do – I do th- I think it's it seems strange, I guess, because at this point, this is not a person who could sell his services yet. Um, and so I, I don't know. It, um, it feels curious to me. I, I suppose that it's exciting probably for the young men involved because it's just to them that they might have a future as a baseball player.
0: Yeah, there is uh, – hold on. There's something I wanted to look up to illustrate your point Okay, I can't find yet. Anyway, there is a player that committed to Mississippi State for baseball that I believe is currently an eighth grader right now Okay, uh, to give you an idea. And it's not unusual for, I'd say, a handful, anywhere from one to five players, to commit before they get to high school in any given class. Nick Schufo, the first-round pick last year out of high school by the uh, Rays, uh, was offered and I believe committed before his freshman year of high school. And then he went in the first round, so obviously that was a, a good move. Although he never got to campus.
1: Yeah. What What is the? Well, I guess that's true. I mean, if if a player, a young player, is good enough to attract that much attention, one also thinks that he's good enough to attract the attention of major league baseball teams, who will give him uh, more money than he could, you know, sort of uh, refuse in his right mind uh, to to go to college.
0: Yeah. And also, we're talking about like. uh high school or college commits that are high school players, or I, I suppose even middle school players, uh, those college coaches are looking for different things than pro scouts are looking. Like, it's not like they're announcing he's a million-dollar player when they get him to commit. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, uh, as we've talked about here before, smaller players tend to hit their upside quicker. So uh, a guy that's sort of like a 5'11", you know, middle infielder that's kind of a grinder without a lot of tools, but makes a lot of contact. Like that guy at 13 might look the same as he does at 17. And often those are like you're not often getting six five players that are committing as freshmen in high school because obviously there's so much sort of coordination and projection and things like that that come together that even when a guy gets drafted at 18 as a six four projectable guy, he looked completely different three years before that. He was just like a gangly guy with no coordination. Uh, so that's usually what we're looking. At. I pulled up uh. Because I know I've heard of a number of commits. A perfect game keeps track of commits all the way through 2017. Uh, so that would be current sophomores that haven't yet played their sophomore baseball year in high school. Okay. And, like, Florida has two commits. I've actually seen one of them play. He's a six-one lefty that's already hit 91 uh, in the Tampa area. And mm-hmm. Florida State's got three. And all three of them are pitchers that have hit 90. One of them I saw hit 93 at Jupiter. Uh, and another one I think hit 91. Uh, thing I was at. Uh, so, I mean, these are obviously legitimate players that some version of what they are right now could technically contribute. And these are sort of top programs in a highly competitive, highly recruited state where you play year round. Like this is sort of the scenario where these kids will get found early. And I believe those five guys I just referenced all committed in the last like six months. So basically when they showed up in the fall as a sophomore in high school, they were uh, you know, sort of found as freshmen and sometimes as eighth graders, and then by their sophomore, you're committed. And there's plenty of players that get offers as early as freshmen or sophomore, but they just don't feel like committing until their senior year, just for you know, family purposes and all that sort of stuff.
1: No, you you mentioned the, the the group you mentioned. I think was all pitchers. Do, do you have a sense? And in, I, I'm not saying that you've you've researched this thoroughly, but just from from your experience, do you have a sense of is it going to skew more towards pitchers for some reason?
0: Uh, well. There's, I guess, a couple of different ways to look at it. Of the five players, one of them was a shortstop. The other four were pitchers. Um, there is uh, – all right, so one school of thought is pitcher is easier to evaluate because if you're 6'2", and you hit 93, and you're 15 years old, you are good enough for any Division one school to recruit, and you don't have to really know anything else other than that. And so going to a well-scouted event and seeing a guy throw really hard in a highly recruited state on a good travel team, like it's pretty easy to figure out how that happens. Whereas the shortstop, like, he's probably not going to any showcases, so you're not necessarily going to see sort of the BP workout full deal. You're going to see him mostly in sort of tournaments and games. And it's a little harder to pick out when a guy's a sophomore and, oh, he's pretty good. He might go to college. And, oh, this guy's really good, but he's the same size. They're both, you know, 5'11 and play shortstop. This guy's really good. He's got a little more bat speed and a little more power. And over the summer at games that the high school coaches aren't seeing – uh, you know, he's hitting a lot of those. Of it. Like, that's a little harder to sort of tease out. Right, right. So I, even though I think from the beginning of high school to the end of high school, hitters are more consistent as far as having the same sort of skill level all the way through and thus should be sort of easier to project, it takes longer to sort of recognize that. Uh, and I, I guess both well, hitters and pitchers, the sort of size and physicality changes a lot. But with pitchers, just pure velocity can tell you, Almost all of what you need to know of do I want to recruit this guy. Whereas a hitter, there could be more, you know, smaller things that will take multiple viewings to see. Whereas if you got a lefty that hits ninety three, I want him unless the arm action is atrocious.
1: Right, 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 right. And yeah, and I, I think a thing you mentioned uh, briefly earlier makes sense, certainly in the context of pitchers and why why a pitcher might appeal to a college coach, but not necessarily be a consideration for a big signing bonus. Uh, as a major leaguer is, you know, from a major league, uh, franchise because he has that skill. He has that skill at that age. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to de- develop into, you know, it's not going to become elite beyond that necessarily. It's not, I mean, it might. It, 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 you've mentioned in a previous edition of the podcast that uh, when you were doing work in one of the front offices, there was almost what zero correlation between present velocity and then what velocity three years later or something like that.
0: Yes. That is
1: true. You said that out loud.
0: Yeah. No, there was zero correlation between present velocity for amateur players and future velocity as predicted by the scouts, not because they don't understand how it works, but because there's so many guys where it takes off and goes up 11 ticks and where it more often, uh, most often, where a guy throws 90 in college, you project him to throw 93, and then he throws 87 and gets released at a double A. Right. Right. And there's so many of those that it skews it to where it's almost you know useless on, on the whole as like a, a wide ranging sort of thing.
1: Oh, you, you mentioned this uh, this idea of teasing out the hit tool and how it uh, it's a little bit more complicated. You and I had a uh, we had a correspondence over the weekend earlier this week uh, with regard to attempting to create a very rough a very very rough calculator um, where it's one- made out of sandpaper. <laughs> where one could um, enter in scouting type grades and receive the, you know, the the equivalencies of those in terms of, well, you know, there'd be a slash line, uh I don't know, uh, batting line relative to league average, offense, defense, and then eventually, again, a very rough estimate of uh, wins above replacement for that sort of player. It, it, it's a little bit. St- on the one hand, we have the tools, and, and of course, you've discussed the hit tool at some length, uh, both on the podcast and in print. Um, but when it comes down to it, for um, for a nerd who's who's looking to isolate the actual skills, there's two main ones, and one of them is uh, contact rate or the inverse of that, strikeout rate, and uh, BABIP, right? And I'm curious as to whether, as to as to what like how those two Stats or those two metrics feature into the conversation so far as scouts are concerned, if they do at all, really.
0: Well, I can guarantee you that BABIP does not come up at a ballpark ever.
1: Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and Maybe I, in a press box. Is there a term? Because I was, you know, because when it came down to like looking at strikeout rate, you could just call that contact ability. contact, making contact. That's a, you know, that's that's a term that's used. Um, but the the equivalent for BABIP is. Is difficult. It's difficult to find a term. And you could say, like, line drive ability, but that's not an exact proxy. And that's
0: not a thing that, like, I, I guess I'm thinking of from the perspective of the guys in the front office trying to interpret a report and sort of tease out where you want to rank these guys based on what the reports say. There's never going to be, if there is a report that says, like, above average ability to generate line drives, there's going to be a hundred that never even reference that. Right.
1: Uh, it's not standardized, it. certainly.
0: Yeah, and, right. and it, you can, yeah, so obviously scouts do not talk about BABIP. The very uh, analytically inclined ones or people in the front office that are aware of this and then go watch games also will be aware of it, but unless two of these people are talking to each other and know that both are such inclined to talk about this, mm-hmm. they're never going to talk about BABIP because obviously there's a huge, I don't know, 90% of scouts who not don't understand it but don't have a great – like why would you talk about it in those terms if you could talk about it more in – Mechanical right. or that sort of thing terms, right. but you can. I think what, in the email we had, I said, "Oh, I don't. I didn't look at the math to see sort of how you're using my because I guess in one version of this calculator, I had to put sort of a 2080 grade on BABIP like ability, and I and I said like, oh, I didn't look at the sort of formulas to see how you were contorting that into something, but I assume you wanted BABIP as a proxy for ability to hit line drives with an addition a splash of being really fast as sort of a way to uh, have a higher uh, batting average than your pure hitting skills would indicate. Right. Right? Something to that effect. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah, exactly.
0: So it's it, I think it's a combination of ability to hit the ball uh, hard in the ballpark and also to be fast, which are two things they talk about all the time. Uh, and obviously there's a grade for fast, but there's uh, a less used grade for game fast or a combination of a base running grade and a – and a speed tool grade, depending on sort of what team and what kind of format they use for the reports, and then line drive ability could be teased out from the comments, or it may not be directly talked about, and you have to sort of ask the specific question.
1: Right? Yeah, because so if if you know if baseball were just starting now, and you went to, um, I, I don't know, no one would come to me, but uh, you know, <laughs> but if someone asked me, it's like, how, what do you want from a scouting report to to understand a hitter? I would say, well. Here's here's how I here's how the easiest way is to think about it with major leaguers, right? Because you know with major leaguers we have all the data, right? And with a major leaguer, if you want to look at his offensive contributions, if you know his if you know a major leaguer's strikeout rate and you know his BABIP, whether you want to say it's his actual BABIP or if you have like if you say uh, yeah that guy is like a true talent you know 300 BABIP guy. And then if you know his uh, home run rate, which you can call raw power, and again that's something that I think um, there's there's uh, you know almost an exact equivalent in scouting parlance. If you if you give if you give me those three things, I can tell you what sort of hitter he is. You know, and obviously there is a system in place, and it works, you know, to varying you know to varying degrees of success. But for, for the I assume for the most successful clubs, it, you know, it works very well. So it's not. There's no need to to mess it up. But there is a sort of translation that has to occur if you're a, a person who's interested, like I am, in in isolating d- the actual things that you know that contribute to to offense.
0: Yeah, and the good front offices, the way they handle this is um, there are reports. There may be some little things that they put in the report and tell their scouts. You know. You know, in this blank specifically address, you know, how good he is at hitting line drives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some teams may do that, um, but the way that they separate themselves as far as the information either gathering but more the processing of it is, you know, so when a trade is happening, a GM or assistant GM talks to another GM or assistant GM, some sort of interest is swapped, there seems to be some sort of fit, and then at some point one of the GM says to the other, hey, let would you be open to something like this player involved in a package for this player in a package? Yes, okay, let me go talk to my scouts, I'll get back to you. And then what happens is every pro scout uh or every scout that saw the players uh involved gets on a conference call and they sometimes for hours we'll talk about, you know, the GM, all the executives, all the pertinent scouts. We'll sit there and go through all the reports this year from the players that they're talking about. Is there any players you think we should ask about? Have you heard any buzz about guys they're trying to trade? All this stuff that's not in the report gets brought up, and the good teams know how to ask their scouts in a way that the scouts are comfortable answering, hey, is this guy an above-average line drive rate guy? Is he a guy where the speed on the scouting report plays in the game? Is he a hustler? Like, that sort of stuff. And then they use that information, which seems to be, to the scout, something in sort of his realm of expertise and something he's comfortable with and something he has an opinion about. Mm -hmm. They then bring that to the analysts who can then take the reports. They understand the reports. A lot of them are scouts themselves, but also are fluent in sort of the analytical world and sort of put all that together and say, okay, this guy is a three-war player, and we think there's a 60% chance he'll get there uh, within two years. Mm -hmm. And it may not be that exact, but something along those lines as a way of sort of coming up with a value And then that gets fed to the GM and they say, this is how good the player we have is. This is how good the other team thinks he is. Here's the players we'd like to target. We think the other team targets or, you know, values them like this. Your job is to handle the negotiating part and, you know, read your opponent and the other GM and figure out how to get the most value out of this and sort of set parameters for what you'll give up and what you won't. And I know there are multiple teams that have a good reputation for sort of uh, sinking all these things mm-hmm. and have a good reputation for consistently year to year acquiring, you know, good players and different sorts of players and filling holes efficiently within their payroll and things like that. And whenever I ask them, you know, what separates you from the other teams? they like, well, I don't know about what the other teams do. This is what we do. And they describe what I just told you. And they all tend to do that. And they're all like, it doesn't seem crazy to us that this is our process. We don't think there's anything groundbreaking in here. What do other teams do? And I was like, a much less efficient version (laughs) of that. In part, I think because the executives are either very statistically oriented and a traditional GM won't listen to them or very scouting uh, inclined and aren't curious enough to add the statistical aspects to the report, then you get a – uh, you know, things are shaded one way or the other, uh, on the player. You end up picking the wrong player because you're shading one way or the other. And then combine that with maybe a GM that isn't as savvy and maybe will get taken advantage if he puts his cards on the table too quickly. That's how bad trades happen.
1: Right. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot going on. Yeah. And
0: so the, I guess that's, that's sort of the process. When you hear, oh, such and such is such a great GM, he's always making good deals. That's what he's doing. And the way that he can foster making good deals is getting, uh, multi-talented people that understand multiple different kinds of information and putting them in a position to succeed in creating sort of a pipeline of information that once, once he needs to sort of prime that pump, like, hey, the Dodgers called, we need to, you know, figure out what we think of their system. In three hours, he's got all the information he needs and then he can go focus. Or I guess he or she, if I want to be politically correct.
1: Right. <laughs> although there, there's not a lot of she at this point, right?
0: Well, I mean, if I was talking about a linebacker, I would say he or she. I'm just trying to be fair here. Yeah. Um, and then you know he or she then can focus on this is the information and i'm just processing it whereas if the gm doesn't you know trust his executive doesn't trust his scouts he's busy trying to tweak those reports while he's also trying to read you know the the gm and that's when you get in that situation where your you know brains can't handle that much information and that's where decisions are made that maybe aren't ideal
1: um i, I, I... I, don't, I think this might be a related question. Well, related insofar as it's about baseball, uh, so that seems right. Uh Also, during your most recent chat, uh, someone asked about development times, uh, the time it would take a player to develop. We say, like, what's the best spot? Oh, yeah, it was with regard to Dalton Pompey or Pompey. Dalton Pompey? 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 He
0: has a volcanic personality.
1: Bob, yeah, he's Pompey. The, the best spot for Pompey to begin the year 2015 is probably the minor leagues. Uh, if, yeah, if
0: there's any question for if he's ready, then he should be in the minor leagues. And I think most most teams other than Toronto think there's a question. But Toronto obviously knows more than everyone else, and they seem to think he's ready. But, right. Yeah,
1: But I'm curious as to w- w- this moment when a, a club identifies when a player is ready for the major leagues. When, it, when a, a player, it could be, a uh, high-ranking prospect could be sort of a middle one. I know that at the moment, uh, Steve Stephen Souza, Stephen Souza, an outfielder in the Washington Nationals organization, I believe will be breaking. He'll he'll be on the major league club, it appears, and it might be because his options are up. I I don't know the exact situation. It's also not very important. Um, Souza will begin as sort of a fourth outfield type. He'll be used pretty frequently. Um, I know that going back to Corey Patterson, who was. Um, considered at least, at least in some camps to be a, a top prospect and actually actually had some pretty good seasons uh big tools yeah and he actually had some decent seasons even though um he didn't really know a lot about the strike zone um he you know a lot a lot of times based on his defense uh, you know which you know probably because of his pure athleticism he was able to sort of fake it for a little while and he had some power and you know he made that work for him as well um but at some point uh, Patterson was used, and I think there's a lot of this to do with Dusty Baker. Patterson was a very young player who was used as a bench player. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of sort of discussion about how he probably should be back in the minor leagues. And I guess I'm curious, so what, uh, to, to, as to the guidelines f- from your perspective of when to promote a player um, and, and when not to, or, you know, if if certain players profile because they're kind of a, Low upside, middle infield type. That guy can be a bench guy any time. Call him up. Whereas uh, maybe a Corey Patterson who has a lot of uh, raw talent should get as many plate appearances as he can in the minor leagues, uh, and then and you know so he's not just sitting on the bench.
0: Yeah, I guess there's different expectations. I should uh, I should point out that uh, when I was in Baltimore, Corey Patterson was also there, and his uh, walk-up music was uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. So I feel so, like that, Yeah, I feel like that's some-
1: it's important point. to note
0: yeah. in this in this uh, development discussion that clearly something went right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It, it, I think it's interesting because often when you see uh, the youngest player in any given league, it if you take away sort of the first round pick, uh, you know, super stud, uh, you know, I always say more more accurately, top ten pick, super stud high school player. If you take that guy away, it's almost always a Latin shortstop that's, uh, among the youngest guys in his league all the way from short season to the big leagues. Because that guy is seen as, if he can't hit a lick, he could still be useful in the big leagues. And we, uh, you know, we would like to see what he turns into. Now, if that guy is like, uh, well, it, it, I don't want to say he is Carlos Correa, but if he's a guy that looks like he could play somewhere up the middle or be a shortstop and he has huge power, And looks like, you know, a potential star or everyday player or whatever, even if he's totally raw, uh, Anthony Hewitt with the Phillies is a good example. You'll take it a little slower, make sure he succeeds and before you move him up, if he's a really advanced defensive shortstop or catcher that you're not sure is ever going to hit or be an everyday guy, but you, you know, you think he could be a defensive big league asset immediately, those guys get rushed all the time. Uh, and you see it a lot. Um, and a, a lot of times they don't really turn into anything. But there seems to be an inclination that, well, he's probably only going to be a backup anyway. So if he hits 220 or 240 or 210 in the big leagues, it doesn't really make a difference. So, you know, we could all be fired before he gets up. Why don't we just, you know, get on with it and see what we have and, you know, sort of challenge him. Uh, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's often what happens. Whereas when you have your, your raw first round pick with all kinds of tools but isn't quite polished yet, that guy will be in rookie ball for three years. And that's obviously a different way to look at it.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I it's interesting to make the point about, about the, like the top, uh, shortstops, um, even if they don't really have much offensive polish or are unlikely to develop it at all, uh, because defense, of course, is, is this one of the skills that peaks earliest. Yeah, and you also
0: don't necessarily see it with center fielders that much because I think if anyone that's a 70 or 80 runner could be a good big league defensive center fielder, whereas shortstop is more of a thing you're somewhat not born with, but like when a guy signs at 16, you have an idea if he has the capability of being a plus defensive shortstop, Mm -hmm. and guys generally don't learn how to do that. And it's a very specific skill that you have to – it's almost like being an NBA player. You can be tall and jump high, but to be in the NBA, there has to be a lot of basketball-specific skills that if you're 19 and don't look like you have those skills, you're probably never going to get them.
1: Right. What, what was the. Like when Billy Hamilton was playing shortstop and when BJ Upton was playing shortstop, what was the likelihood really that those guys were going to continue to play shortstop? You know, the team leaves him there. The the, the team, you know, left Hamilton at shortstop for some time, left Upton, the Rays left Upton at shortstop, he, you know, to the point where he had major league appearances at shortstop. Um, I've
0: actually. Oh, I just did the Reds list, and I'm currently already made – I think I've already made like six or seven calls on the raise list, and I asked both of those questions because I was just sort of curious because that sort of also speaks to – because it's the same – regimes are in place from both of those decisions. I
1: mean just to kind of give you where they're coming from? Give you an idea?
0: Yeah, and it's also, like, these guys don't mind talking about stuff that happened in the past that we already know the answers to, whereas they could be a little defensive about a guy that's currently in AAA. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we think he can do it. Yeah, we like him. Whereas, like, Hamilton's already become a good big leaguer. They don't have anything to be defensive about. Um, And I think it also gives a peek into sort of how they think about these things. And the Reds still think Hamilton could have played short, but it was more like we needed to get him to the big leagues. He was it's almost like uh Neftali Feliz and these guys that come up as starters and then are brought to the big leagues as relievers to find a way to get them into the big leagues and then some of them are so good as a reliever you can't take the time to let them become a starter which is what happened with Java
1: Chamberlain, Papelbon, maybe Neftali, uh, Tra- Trevor Rosenthal maybe is
0: possible Yeah, it's a lot of examples and maybe and the Reds also still think our oldest Chapman could have been a starter uh but it was a sort of a combination of need. He was already getting paid a lot of money. The manager had a certain way he wanted to do things. Like, there's a lot of sort of job security and real-world uh decision-making that affects those sorts of things. And also the player psyche itself. Like, I mean, Earl Chapman was, you know, pretty quickly one of the best relie- relievers in the big leagues, and then he was a little rocky as a starter. Like, at some point, he's going to start questioning how you're handling him. Is that worth it? And uh, Billy, they still think Billy Hamilton can play short. I watched him play short in double a, it wasn't great, but Johnny Peralta didn't look great before we knew he was a good shortstop defensively as you know, like the statistics told us in the eventually, like, Oh yeah. in game eight, I realized he's made that play in the hole three times in a row. He doesn't look pretty. He makes that play. Uh, it could have been that kind of thing where it kind of grows on you. And I think that's where the Reds people were, that it wasn't necessarily the prettiest or most perfect thing in the world. Uh, but they thought he could do it, and I think Upton absolutely, uh, BJ Upton absolutely had the tools to play there, and I think it was more of a uh, a focus and fundamentals and footwork and that sort of thing. And similar to Bryce Harper and Will Myers playing catcher, Harper could absolutely has the tools to play catcher in the big leagues. Myers is more of a question mark. Alex Jackson, who just went in the top ten to the Mariners, is good enough to leave him back there for a few years in the minors. All of them were too advanced offensively to put up with that and all of them have some defensive value at other positions so it's not like you're throwing it away and making him a dh uh so practicality sort of takes over and like i said at some level the guys making these decisions with the exception of very few of them like their jobs are tied to how good these players are and if they get to the big league so at some point they're incentivized to hurry up and get something already. So if you've given BJ Empton six years from when he signed to when he's in the big leagues to figure out shortstop and he's still making everyone cringe, like just casual baseball fans cringe when they hit the ball at him, like just put him in center field already. Like it's not that big of a defensive uh, difference. So you see, you see that kind of decision-making and specifically the moving the guy off shortstop that presumably could stay at shortstop but gets moved, same with catcher. You see it all the time, especially when there's a very advanced bat involved. Or when it's you don't think he's going to hit at all, so let's just hurry him up and get him there so he becomes something.
1: Do you do? You, I mean, can you think of any cases offhand of a situation where a team left a, a, a B.J. Upton type that is a guy with with an, an advanced bat, <clears throat> advanced skills, but uh, still learning the position, where that guy maybe just during an off season somehow figured it out at some point during the middle of the season. There's something he figured out and he stayed at the position.
0: Uh, defensively, you're speaking. Yeah. Right. I think Nolan Arenado is a pretty good example. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. He was seen as a bad defensive third baseman. There were a lot of whispers about his makeup. Uh He wasn't seen as having a lot of trade value, and he was in sort of double A AA and triple A. And then suddenly he came up and was like blowing – like UZR was like blowing up. Were, and we're, I remember the first couple articles uh after he was coming up, like, oh, he's great defensively. And then like the second wave was like, wait a minute, everyone said he was supposed to be terrible, and he's great. Like, what's going on? And I remember, I think, on one of our uh, company conference calls, Eno mentioned, like, oh, I'm going to talk to uh, some people in the Rockies. Who should I talk to? And I think Dave uh, Cameron was like, oh, you should talk to uh, – and he brings up this exact thing, like, oh, you should talk to um, Arenado about what he did defensively because wasn't he supposed to be terrible and he's great now? Like, how does that happen? Because that almost never happens.
1: Right, uh, yeah. So, Nolan Ar- Well, and of course, Nolan Arenado was a guy who did have uh, sort of an enticing offensive profile. He makes a lot of contact. Um, but that's not really how he's produced a lot of his major league value thus far.
0: Yeah, he's plus thirty runs in like a season and a half. Right. Uh, that's kind of insane.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, yeah. There's, but I, even then, like, I mean, he was in Double A AA and Triple A and wasn't necessarily hitting as much as people would want, and looked kind of fringy defensively. But it was sort of like, oh, we'll just move into right field. Like, it wasn't like a huge decision. I think he just got better.
1: Right. And then and then uh, like another case, and actually he he's not a very different ball player. Maybe I don't know the power, maybe a little less power, but Stephen Piscotty in the Cardinals organization. Every time someone says
0: his name, I think they're mispronouncing
1: Spaghetti. <laughs> um but but uh, I don't know what Piscotty played uh, or Spaghetti. Stephen Spaghetti played uh third base for Stanford, yeah. Uh I right? saw
0: him play right field. I believe he also played some 3rd base. Maybe it was in his non year he played third.
1: Okay. Well, he definitely – the Cardinals definitely moved into right field. That was the thing that was us And they did it with another player too. Is there Carson Kelly maybe? Yeah.
0: He was a shortstop who they moved to third and then moved to catcher.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Um, it, it might it have been another player too. The point is that it, <clears throat> Piscotti um, also makes a lot of contact like Arenado. Um, but was moved immediately. I mean, is that a situation? Well, at that point, what do you think is the Cardinals' justification? I'm not saying you definitely know, but at that point, if you were to guess, um, what what is the Cardinals' justification there where they move him so quickly?
0: Uh, I just actually looked it up, a draft report on Piscotti. He played third and then was moved to the outfield for freshman Alex Blandino, Mm -hmm. who was a freshman the year Piscotti was in his draft year, and then Blandino became a first-round pick two years later. Oh, so hot freshman came in and he got moved and then was sort of permanently moved. So that progression is somewhat common that a guy as an amateur will play a little out of position relative to where he should be as a pro, and then someone that's like a pro level defensive guy at that position moves him. Actually, there was a uh, high school in Miami, there was a David Thompson who plays at Miami now. uh set the national home run record, if I'm not mistaken, and was playing third base and was also a quarterback prospect who played quarterback for Miami for a little bit. Uh, and he was uh, – I went to go see one of his first games in his draft year as a senior at Westminster High in Miami, and he was playing left field, and there was a freshman playing third. And we're like, what's going on? Like, why is this guy getting moved off of his position? Like, let him play third. We'll decide if he can play third. Like, not a lot of guys get moved down the defensive spectrum after they already succeeded at that position in high school when they're, like, a national record holder. And then we watched the freshman take ground balls. We're like, whoa, that guy's really good. And that guy is Julian Infante, who is now a, I don't know, top five-round guy that's committed to Vanderbilt, uh, who was really, really good as a freshman and is now just you know pretty good. But he looked like a guy that could have been a first-round pick as a freshman. And Thompson is a guy that was going to move to left field anyway, or right field or first base. Mm-hmm. But he's actually playing some third base for Miami now and played third base on the Cape and may potentially start his pro career there. He didn't even play third base as a senior in high school. He got moved. So... It's it's not unusual that that happens. It is unusual uh, for it to happen in high school, but at a place like Stanford, it's not weird that a hotshot freshman comes in and moves a guy to his pro position a year earlier than people were expecting it to happen.
1: Uh, what Now, when what, what it happens in reverse, uh, I'm thinking in this particular case of the example, and if, if you're not necessarily very familiar with, with this player, that's fine, but uh, Rob Refsnyder, who is currently in the Yankees organization, although... Oh yeah, he was sorry, he was drafted by the Yankees. He he was out of the University of Arizona. I think he played almost exclusively right field at Arizona. Um he was uh, he was brought into the Yankees organization and now they have they have converted him to second base um after he played so much right field. And this does not necessarily seem to be the way that players usually move. They usually go the wrong way down the defensive spectrum. Whereas a move to second base is an advantage. Is that a situation where you say, Well, uh, the way he's hitting, he's not going to be. Uh, he's not going to hit enough to be a right fielder. So let's see if he can handle the position. Is it, I mean, is it that, or is it something more nuanced than that?
0: Oh, uh, I just looked up one of Ref Snyder's uh, draft reports, and apparently he played second base in high school, got moved to corner outfield in college, and then got moved back to the infield after he signed, which is another unusual one, uh, but not unprecedented because there are examples, especially at these, you know, Stanford, Arizona, Florida, some of the big programs where they just happen to have three guys that should all be in the lineup that all fit best in pro ball at third base, and they obviously can't all play third base, and one can DH, one can play third, and then one gets moved to the outfield, and maybe the one they move to the outfield ends up being the best defensive fit or the best hitter to where it matters what position he was playing. That's not incredibly weird in college. Uh But, yeah, there are, I would say, maybe one per draft, an example of a guy in the top sort of five rounds, uh, either college or high school, where there's, some sort of weird uh sort of moving around the defensive spectrum. This year there's a high schooler named Jemai Jones uh, out of the Atlanta area. And he, I watched him as a junior on the showcase circuit last year. Uh, when, you know, somebody's underclassmen will come to the events if they're very advanced, and he was one of those guys. And he's a plus runner, uh, plus bat speed, good hitter, uh, kind of fringe power. He was playing short, and he looked like, oh, that guy could play second. Like, not a great arm, not the most range, but he could fit at second base. And he played second at a lot of the bigger events. And then this summer, he played almost exclusively left field, and most scouts weren't paying super close attention to a high school underclassman at that point or didn't see him at all. And they're like, oh, he's a left fielder, though, and he doesn't have huge power. And I was like, oh no, he can play second. And they're like, why isn't he playing second? And I'm like, I'm not sure. And some guys that were, that are from the area were like, oh, well like the travel team he's on has like two like really high profile shortstop and second baseman. And so he just got moved to left and he just got comfortable there. And similar to how Carl Crawford got moved to left, uh, for, for Rocco Baldelli to play center. And then eventually he played left so much he doesn't want to play center, even though he's a 70 or 80 runner that could easily play center hypothetically. He didn't want to. Um, so that kind of thing happens, and I would I would suspect when Jemai Jones – I had him in my top 50 a couple of months ago. He's like a, a top-two-round guy right now. I would suspect if he doesn't play middle infield this spring for his high school team, there will be teams working him out there uh, trying to figure out because there's not a lot of high school left fielders with frenzy power that go high. But if you've got a plus runner at second base that could be a league average batter or better that has a track record of hitting, that guy can go that high. So – but and he doesn't and he doesn't play at one of these high school programs where it's super loaded. Like he'll, I would guess he'll play shortstop this year unless there's you know some sort of injury concern or something. Because I don't know of another huge prospect on his team. And so that's another example where the scouts that just sort of uh, come in for an event or two over the summer, you're sort of taking a survey and seeing some players don't realize what you know what kind of player he
1: is. Uh, I have to get going here in a minute, but um, we've been discussing this sort of. Uh, Position and deciphering, you know, at what position a player is probably uh, most well suited. Uh, of course, Franklin Barreto uh, was traded from the Oakland Athletics to the Toronto Blue Jays in the Josh Donaldson trade. No, reverse that. He was traded from Toronto to Oakland. You agree with that, Kylie? I'm not sure.
0: It's up for opinion.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let's see. The facts. The facts of the matter seem to suggest that he went from Toronto to Oakland. The video. Uh, the video feed, uh, that's included in uh, the post that you wrote about Beretto. Um
0: I keep thinking you're talking about Robert Blake and Beretta when you say his name. I'm
1: not saying that, nor are we talking about spaghetti. So stop it. the The <laughs> point is that he it's labeled he's labeled as a second baseman. Of course, he's only played he's only ever played shortstop defensively in the minors. So what is the sort of um, what is that evaluation period through which uh, Oko now is to go, and how does the fact that uh, He's maybe an above-average hitter. What, how does that affect uh, Barreto's future defensive home?
0: Uh, he is a very good hitter, so that puts him in a similar position to some of these other players we've talked about, where if there's a question, and to answer that question, it's, oh, leave him in the minors a few more years, uh, but the problem is he hits enough that he needs to be in the big leagues now, then that'll be the answer to that question. So the inclination from scouts now is, oh, he's his bat's going to get there quickly, He's not great defensively. He's small. He's like, I don't know, 5'8 or something like that, which when players are that small, you kind of have to stand back to him to actually know how big they are because the measurements are very inaccurate. Um, but he's a smaller guy. He's got enough arm. He's got a plus arm. Uh, his hands are fine. The footwork and sort of the lateral movement is a little lacking. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's okay. Uh But he's a 60, maybe 65 runner, so he could easily go play center field, which he's played before uh as, I think, an amateur. I'm not sure if he's played it in pro ball, maybe in instructs. And he would easily play second base, Uh which, you know, would be a waste of his plus arm, but he'd be at least average there, and obviously there's plenty of defensive value there. So everyone just knows he's an up-the-middle guy. The Blue Jays have been saying he improved a lot this year defensively. He was in short season, so he wasn't seen by a ton of scouts. Uh And I could say he's one of those sort of hardworking grinder guys that – gets the most out of his ability, which I think is common with sort of smaller guys because, you know, they're not always the top of prospect list, so they got to work hard. Um, so he's a guy you leave at shortstop, and I'd say you give him, say, two years, give him uh, A ball maybe all the way to double A at shortstop and then see how much progress he makes. And if he's close or, you know, reasonably close and defensive miscues don't seem to affect his bat and leave him there, Uh if you've got a plus defensive shortstop in the big leagues, then maybe move him to second and try to get some versatility and figure out a way to get him... Um, get him a role in the big leagues because I mean scouts were tossing around 60s on his bat. he's even played in low a yet so I hedged a little bit like I just like to see a little more performance for a tiny guy that may not play a shortstop and hasn't played in full season yet but all the indicators are there that he could be a guy that hits you know 280 with 12 or 15 homers and is a, one of those smaller guys that peaks uh soon I mean he could be in the big leagues at the not, I think he could play both A-ball levels in 15 and then go from double A to the big leagues in 16. If, like, everything goes as quickly as some people think, and obviously that I'm saying give him a, a year or two at shortstop to see how things work out, I'm guessing he won't look like a slam dunk, at least average defensive shortstop, at the end of two years. And so that's why some people think, hey, if the bat's are real, just uh put him at second base or center field or, you know, rotate him between all three positions or, I don't know, play him at third. Like, just get him in there somewhere.
1: Right, right. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's excellent, Kylie. The whole thing that you did. The whole thing that you did. I was eating chicken throughout this entire podcast. That's great. That's great. I'm glad you, I'm glad you were able to have some nice chicken.
0: Yeah, it's some pretty nice chicken. Also, I should note, this is, I think, our first podcast in a while where we didn't talk about, like, uh, current hot sports takes and news and my recent articles and whatnot, which, you know, some reason for that is that I haven't had a lot of recent articles, but I am now back home. My, uh, my apartment shopping and, uh, and holidays have, uh, passed. I am sitting at my home desk and tonight I will attempt to finish the Phillies list, which should be posted tomorrow. And if it is not, I am a failure. Yeah. And well, then also the other good part is while I was on the road, I emailed all the people for the next five lists and I've got, I think, two more that are basically done. I just have to write them. So I might, might, might start spitting these things out pretty quickly, especially if the winter meetings isn't too eventful. I might just go sit in the corner and write lists.
1: Yeah, that's good. Good use of your winter meetings, Kylie. Hey,
0: me and my computer we're buddies.
1: And I think I uh, Eno's getting you guys beer somewhere. So that's good. I too. was
0: I was actually talking to an executive a couple days ago about about uh you know his organization and uh, he's like Oh you going to winter meetings? I was like, Yeah, when are you getting in? Uh, we're going on Sunday uh, I think we're gonna, you know, as a group, we're gonna do like a little like sort of brewery tour. He goes, oh, Eno's probably organizing that, isn't he? I was like, yeah, I'll tell him you said that. He goes, you should. <laughs> so it sounded like he was gonna start an intervention. It sounded like it's where he's it headed.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, um Eno is a silly drunk person. He is really, some people hold it together. Eno just is a very goofy drinker.
0: I, um, I could see that. I've yeah. eaten, uh, tacos with him in a, in a rougher part of the Bay Area and, that seemed to be what I was learning from him.
1: He's also a goofy taco eater too. He's goofy most of the time. But listen, no, I have, uh, I do have an appointment. I have an appointment, Kyla McDaniel. Are you
0: late for a very important date?
1: Uh, it's not a. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an obligation. It's on the agenda.
0: I will warn you. I'm about to uh, record and send you my intro, and it is going to be mind bending.
1: Okay, I'm prepared. I'll prepare to have my my mind bent. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So let's get off this. We'll talk for a second, and then we'll everybody will get going.
0: I'll go cook some pescati.
1: All right. Thank you, uh, Kyler McDaniel, for joining us. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's Kyla McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst at Lead Prospect Analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stoule. This is Fangraphs Audio.